I really love Thanksgiving services like this. I, I love babies. We've had four children, and I really, really like the baby phase. Like, I, I love just the new... When Jenny's not expecting just to <laughs> expel any rumours. We're done. We've had four. That's, I think, full stop. But, <laughs> all right. But I, I love new life. There's something incredibly precious about seeing new life brought into the world. And I love these moments of thanksgiving, this opportunity for us to get together as, as a church and as friends and family and to give thanks to God and to celebrate the gift of life. But some of you may have been wondering why in thanking God for these lives that that we get everyone to stand and make a commitment. You might be thinking, well, you know, surely it's the parent's job <laughs> to raise the child. Like, I get why we would ask them to make those commitments, but why, why are we all in on this? What's it got to do with us? Or, or maybe you're here as friends and family, and you think, well, I mean, yeah, we're their family, so it makes sense, but what's it got to do with the church? I want to say it is the parent's responsibility. Of course it is. But parenting doesn't happen in a vacuum. And children are like sponges. They soak up what they see and hear, and not just from their parents, actually. There's an old African proverb that says, it takes a village to raise a child. Meaning, it's not just parents, or actually even just biological family, who play a part in raising children, but there is a broader community responsibility and contribution and shaping influence on children. What our children hear, see, feel, and learn will all affect how they grow up, what they believe, and who they turn out to be. Now, some of you might be thinking on hearing that proverb, I've seen the village and I don't want it raising my child. <laughs> and depending on the village or community that you have in mind, I don't blame you. You read the news, you look around, you think, gosh, I don't want that shaping influence on my child. I can understand that. You may also be thinking, of course it takes more than just parents, but we've got family, we've got grandparents and uncles and aunts, and yeah, and I can see the impact of school teachers and friends and, for better or worse, the media as they grow, but, but still, what's the church got to do with it? Because for many of us, church is a meeting that we attend for a couple of hours on a Sunday or for the really keen, a series of meetings that we attend at different points in the week. Maybe Sunday, morning and evening, depending on the church you go to, if you're really keen. And if you're super keen, then on a Wednesday evening as well, you get another meeting to attend. And 
You might say, Owen, don't be silly. We know church is more than that. We know church isn't just a series of meetings. But I think the challenge for all of us, whatever you would profess to believe or not about church, is that actually our practice reveals what we really believe. That's, that's true in all of life. Okay, We can say what we believe, but what we actually live out reveals what our true convictions are on things. And we find it hard to break that mindset of meetings when it comes to church. If we view and practice church as a meeting on a Sunday, and for the really keen, a meeting on a Wednesday evening too, then you would be really right in your assumption that the church will have limited impact, actually, on the development of your child. And, and you might be right in responding and saying, what's the church got to do with it? If it's just a meeting you attend. In fact, actually, the church will not have very much to do with the raising of your child or caring for the elderly or anyone else who is in need for that matter if it is simply a meeting for two hours on a Sunday. Because the capacity for meaningful, life-shaping impact in two hours a week is pretty limited. The ability to really care for one another, to meet each other's needs, in the context of a two-hour meeting on a Sunday is also pretty limited. But a two-hour meeting on a Sunday isn't the picture the Bible paints of the church. If we open up 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to do that. The, the words will come up on the screen. <clears throat> this is part of a letter written to a first century church community in a place called Corinth. We find the church referred to as a body of interconnected and interdependent parts. We read this from 1 Corinthians 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all, that's all Christians, all in the church, were baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the same one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. And then a bit later in the same passage from verse 27, it says, now you are the body of Christ. Church. And each one of you is a part of it. In another letter in the Bible, written to a group of first century Christians living in Jerusalem, we find the church pictured this time not as a body, but as a family. In Hebrews 2, verse 11, we read this. The one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. In other words, Jesus and those who trust in him, Christians, are united in one family together. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian, you are in the same family as other Christians. 
And there are numbers of other places we could go for the same kind of imagery. Like Ephesians chapter 2, we read this says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, other Christians that is, and also members of his household or his family. Now, we've just started a series together here at Foundation Church, um, rooted out of Acts chapter 2, where we, we see this lived out in the early church. We read that they were together daily in each other's homes, sharing everything they had in common, even selling land and possessions to help meet the needs of others within the church community. You see... There are so many places we could go in Scripture to find this. The Bible has no concept of church as a weekly meeting or series of meetings that we attend. It's far more profound than that. It's people who are so inextricably connected together that they could be likened to a body that if one part hurts, they all feel it. That they rejoice with those who rejoice and they mourn with those who mourn. The Bible teaches us that the local church is a family, a body, a community of people of all ages and backgrounds who are committed to God and committed to one another. We see in Acts 2, they spend time together, eat together, read scripture together, pray together, care for one another, invest in each other's lives help each other find strength and hope and purpose and meaning in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're committed to each other's growth, development and maturity. That's the picture the Bible gives of the church. And when we understand that, it changes things, doesn't it? if we understand what that is church is supposed to be like, then actually it makes sense of standing together and making the promises we made earlier. Because we're not just saying to Will and Attie or to Rich and Soph, we'll see you on Sunday. We're just saying like, oh, see you on Sunday. We're saying to them in the up and downs of life, through sleepless nights and tear-filled tantrums, in moments of celebration and moments of crisis, we're with you because we're family. We're with you because we're united in Jesus. We're with you because when you hurt, we hurt. We're with you. We're going to celebrate your victories with you. And we're going to mourn your losses with you too. Because we love you. Because Jesus first loved us. See, family love one another, don't they? And, and I guess you're all in families. And, and I understand that some of us have had hurtful or painful experiences of family. But I think all of us even through that, understand that healthy family love one another and care for one another. That healthy family get involved in the everyday stuff of life. They're not just there for events. 
Family get involved in the everyday stuff of life, church. And I really do mean the everyday stuff of life. Not just events or prearranged social times or dinner parties, as good as those things are. I mean the everyday stuff. Like the church, I think, when we open the Bible, I think the picture we see is that the church actually should be people with open hearts and open homes, and dare I say it, open fridges. If we just see each other on a Sunday, then it will be very hard to be committed to one another's growth. It will be. And even harder to do anything about it. Even if we say we're committed, if we only see each other on a Sunday, it's going to be very hard to put that into practice in any meaningful way. But if we're in each other's homes, if we're at the park together, if we're eating meals together, if we're around each other when it all kicks off, then there's space and context to speak into each other's lives, to help each other find strength and hope again in Jesus, to offer help and support, Just look at the Gospels and how Jesus did this with his followers. This was the model he set for us. He didn't arrange a series of meetings with his disciples. He just didn't kind of give them a schedule and arrange a series of meetings. No, he he walked with them. He journeyed with them. He traveled with them. They, They lived their lives together. They did ordinary things like eating together and traveling together, fishing together, sitting around a fire together on a beach. And as the disciples did stupid things while they were spending time with him, he spoke into those moments and he helped them. We need to do the same for each other. I think the truth is that we're all very good at putting on a face for a couple of hours on a Sunday. Like you, you come in, and maybe Anne will welcome you downstairs. How are you? Yeah, good. <laughs> How's your week been? Good. Like, <laughs> we're very good at putting on the right face for a few hours. But if you spend enough time together, two things will happen. The first is that eventually you can't keep up that pretense. See, proximity makes superficiality impossible. If you spend enough time close with people, eventually you let your guard down and they see you for who you really are. It's important within the church that we do that for one another. It's how we're going to grow to maturity. The other thing that happens is that you build a close enough relationship to feel able to be vulnerable and to trust one another, to speak into those moments. So if you barely know someone, you just see them once a week, then when they try and help you with something, it can feel like a kind of drive-by shooting. It's just kind of like on the way past, like, oh, by the way, you think, oh, that hurts. 
But if you're actually in one another's lives, you care for one another, and there's time to sit and work it through. You know they're for you. There is vulnerability in opening our lives to one another. But I think that God's plan for the church's maturity and for your maturity is that we do just that. That we disciple one another. That we point one another to Jesus. That we apply the good news of the gospel to one another's lives. You need to let people close enough for that to happen. If you keep people at a kind of, yeah, good, arm's length then they can't do that for you. It's like that body image that Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians 12, the hand saying to the foot or to the eye, I don't need you, thanks very much. When we keep each other at arm's length with a, yeah, good, that's what we're doing. This isn't very British, I appreciate that. (laughs) But opening our homes and sharing our lives together, I think is so important for our growth. As Christians. And increasingly, I'm encouraged. I'm hearing stories of things like this beginning to happen amongst us at Foundation Church. I I kind of see more snippets on social media, or I'm in conversation with people, and they say, Oh, I was with those people yesterday, or I went for dinner with those people, or we went to the park together as mums, or we did this. And I'm starting to hear and see more and more snippets of this kind of thing happening. So I just want to illustrate briefly why this is helpful, why I think this is important, with a hypothetical scenario that may or may not have happened, but it's been made anonymous. (laughs) If people from church turn up on your doorstep unannounced and offer to help do the washing up whilst you put the children to bed... This may or may not have happened in real life. (laughs) Then one of two scenarios can unfold in that moment. (laughs) The first is this. The washing up gets done. The children behave well and go to bed as they should. Jenny and I feel very grateful for the help. And the kids love having people from church around the house as extended family. They love others involved in reading stories to them and just being around. The children benefit, Jenny and I benefit, and the people who come and have offered to do the washing up and just be around our family for a while hopefully benefit too as they see a model of a family life centered on Jesus. That's one way it can go. The other is this. The washing up gets done. Might need to be redone later, but the washing up gets done. And something gets broken in the process. I do my best to remain full of grace and patience and thankful for the help. The children misbehave and show off and push the boundaries. And I respond in a less than gracious way in a less than godly and patient way, perhaps. See, in this scenario, we still all benefit. In fact, arguably, we benefit more because there's space to grow in godliness. 
Because when that kind of thing happens, and that kind of thing happens, then my character is exposed as less than perfect, which it is. And then I need to repent to God. And before my children. And so I apologize to the children. I ask them to forgive me for losing my temper with them. And I pray with them and allow them to see me repenting and asking God to forgive me and to grow patience in me. My children benefit from that because they see that I'm not perfect, but Jesus is. That they don't have to be perfect, but they can come to a saviour who is and who loves them. The children get a reminder as well of something we try to teach them often. That mummy and daddy will always do our best, but we're not perfect. Only Jesus is. He's the hero in our home. We all need him. I'm not the hero. Jesus is. They also learn because we tell them as we discipline them that we love them. And that our love for them is not based on their behavior. That we love them when they're good and when they're bad. That we love them when they're obedient and disobedient. That we love them all the time. Just as Christ has loved us. And the people who turned up on our doorstep to be helpful and do the washing up and break something in the process also benefit. Because again, they get to see that our family isn't perfect. But that it's centered on Jesus. It's a family where God's first. Now, in reality, it's less polarized than those two possible outcomes. It's generally a kind of muddle of somewhere in the middle. And that's how it's supposed to be, I think. So how do we follow up to live in that kind of way? How do we follow up on the commitments that we made earlier to Richard and Sophie and Will and Atty? How could our lives better represent the body, the family that we talked about and read of in the Bible? Well, very practically, <clears throat> turn up and help with stuff. <laughs> like, ask if you can help. Invite yourself round. <laughs> invite each other as church into the everyday. If you're headed out for a walk, invite others to join you on that walk. Sitting down to dinner, invite others to sit and eat with you. So all of us eat every day. It's, it's just as easy to eat together <laughs> as it is apart. It's incredible how much community and relationship is built around a meal. Make, make the most of that opportunity. Pray for one another. Be around. Be available. Talk to one another. Spend time together. See, for all of us, and actually especially children as they grow up, having mentoring relationships with other adults is hugely important in their development. It's important in the development mentally and socially anyway. That's, that's actually clinically proven that it's good for them and for their development. But it's important for their development spiritually too. That they see people other than their mum and dad who love them and who are going to point them to Jesus. Youth, you're not out today, you're in. 
guys, you've got a part to play in this too. The children younger than you in this church grow up. They look up to you. They see the example you set. You've got a part to play in this. Our society also almost prizes busyness. I don't know if you've noticed that. Prizes busyness as a status symbol. I get many of you in this room will have busy jobs, demanding jobs. I understand that. But I think we're at a point in our society almost where, like, busy is like the mark of, like, how well you're doing in life. How's your week been? Busy. Oh, man, so busy. Like, all good, but busy, like, hectic. And it's easy, even normal, expected to fill every waking moment with activity and leave no space for people or interruptions. We fill up our diaries to the point that we're just too busy for one another. If we're so busy that others always feel like they're interrupting us by calling or visiting or proposing a time to meet, then I want to suggest we're too busy. I think our families should be noted for their flexibility and joy when others stop by, their friendliness when called, and availability when needed. People aren't an inconvenience. Guys, you need to hear this. People aren't an inconvenience. The people in this room aren't an inconvenience. They're important. They're integral to your growth. And you are to theirs. Make time for one another. But that doesn't come naturally, does it? So what would motivate us to live that out? Well, I think that understanding... And appreciating the love of God made known in Jesus will make all the difference. In John chapters 13 to 17, we find a few chapters of Jesus giving his kind of parting words to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. We find in those chapters the, the things that he wants to impress upon them before he goes to the cross. And right in the middle of it, in John chapter 15, we read this. He says to them in John 15, verse 12, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. What's his command? Love, as I've loved you. Love one another. Who is he speaking to? His disciples, his followers, or in the context we're talking now, the church. Love one another, as I have loved you. You're my friends if you do what I command. Now, this 
isn't to say that you have to love others in order to become Jesus' friends. But that Jesus' friends will love others. Because they've experienced love from him. Because they've received from him perfect, unconditional love. Unmerited favor. And yet, let's be honest, because I think that's important. At times, we can struggle to miss our favorite TV show for one another. Like, I just... I don't know, maybe that's just me. (laughs) Let alone being so committed to each other's growth and maturity that you'd be prepared to lay your life down for one another. Because that's what Jesus said, wasn't it? He said, love each other as I have loved you. And then he goes on to expound on what that looks like. Greater love has no one than this, to lay his life down for his friends. Jesus says, I'm calling you, I'm inviting you into an experience of perfect love and then I'm asking you to let that flow out of you to those around you sacrificial love just as I have loved you. (laughs) Now the truth is we're never going to get to a point where we go, yeah, like nailed that one, what's next? (laughs) I'm doing it perfectly, Jesus. I'm loving everyone perfectly as you loved me. I'm willing to lay my life down for them all, all the time. Done. See, Jesus' sacrificial love of going to the cross to pay for your sins set a new standard in love. It's impossible to live out apart from the power of his spirit at work in us. But the good news is this. The Spirit has been poured out and is given to all who put their trust in Jesus. So as we remember and we remind each other of Jesus' love for us, his costly, sacrificial love that led him to die on our behalf at the cross so that we might be called children of God, as we allow the truth of that to sink in and ask the Spirit to change our hearts to be more like His, we allow it to motivate us to love others. And He'll do that in us. We grow in love. Jesus' exhortation to you today as we give thanks for these children and as we commit to walking together in the months and years to come is this. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another enough to spend time together. Love one another enough to disciple each other. Love one another enough to call out sin when you see it. Love each other enough to be genuinely committed to each other's growth and maturity. Love each other enough that you pray for each other's families. Love each other enough Love each other even when you don't feel like it and they don't deserve it. 
because he has first loved you. He has first loved you. We're going to come back and sing one final song that reminds us of the good news of who God is and what he's done. As we do, I want to encourage you to let these words sink in and these truths motivate us to love God and love one another. I want to pray for us just before we do that together. Jesus, we thank you for your great love towards us. Jesus, I thank you that you haven't treated me as my sins deserve. You didn't look on me and say, does he deserve it? You haven't looked on us and said, do they deserve it? No, you've looked on us in love and you poured yourself out completely that we might receive life and life in all its fullness. And then Jesus, you've asked us to do the same for others, to love as we've been loved. We know that that will lead us into action, that that will lead us into care of one another. And so God, we ask, would you give us hearts like your heart? Would you help us to love like you love? Would you help us to be those who open our homes and open our hearts to one another? Would you help us to be those who encourage one another, who stand with one another in the highs and lows, who consistently and continually point one another back to you and the hope that we have in you? Lord, we know we can't do it in our own strength. But we're so glad and relieved that you haven't asked us to. Instead, you promised that you would pour out your spirit on all who ask. And so we look to you now. And we say, Lord, would you pour out your spirit again? Would you cause us to be people with soft hearts towards one another? Would you cause us to be those by your spirit who love as we have been loved, who serve as we have been served by you, who live our lives for your glory and for the good of those around us. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.